to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If somebody's turning in a pew Bible, shout out the page number so everybody knows it'll make it easier. 961. Thank you. 961. Well, it's pew page 961. Um, if you don't have a pew Bible, it's 1 Corinthians 15, uh, beginning in verse 20. We're going to stop at verse 28 in the interest of time today, so it's verses 20 to 28. Um, I... Uh, I want to encourage you to turn in a print Bible, or if you need to, on your uh, device, if that's where you've got a place to, to take notes, because we'll be following along today together in this uh, important text. So get situated here, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28, as you're getting there, and then we'll read it. Okie 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put His enemies underfoot or under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The word subjection six times mentioned, obviously a key word in the Apostle Paul's argument regarding resurrection here in chapter 15, and that is where we pick up, is with the Apostle Paul's argument for resurrection here in chapter 15. This is a continued argument. I've preached previous sermons on this subject. I'll not be able to retrack all of that ground just to point you online and say we've talked about uh, different aspects of the resurrection and Paul's argument as it's unfolding here. We pick up in verse 20 through 28, having just explored seven implications for believing in the resurrection uh, and understood that actions follow belief. What we believe actually matters because we act in accordance with what we believe at some point, at some juncture, maybe not immediately. That was Easter. But now we turn to verse 20, and we look at these verses, and he's making a more proactive or positive statement about the resurrection rather than taking it from what if, what if, what if, 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 and saying we'd be pitiable if the resurrection wasn't true. We'd have a very hollow religion indeed, uh, is, is his statement prior. So at verse 20 now, our, our main point for today, or our textual title for today, is the first of a living breed. The first of a living breed. We're playing off of the old idiom in English, the last of a dying breed, which is a phrase meant to indicate, it's picked up by various pop artists and different poets in our society in the last 50, 100 years. It's meant to intimate or indicate a relatively rare type of person. People like them are said to be the last of a dying breed. Uh, one online comment said that this phrase means a person was exemplary or, or rare, defined uh, the kind of person that would still sacrifice or serve or uh, 
if a, if a uh, just kind of a common uh, something you might understand, if you if you were to hold the door open for your date, you might be the last of a dying breed because you you held the door open for your date, and that's a chivalrous thing that might be considered good, but might be not happening so much anymore, as one commentator put it. Uh, so instead of thinking of the last of a dying breed per se, I'm going to get to the point today where we talk about the first of a living breed, and that's kind of going to tie the text together. We're going to do that based on three different points, and I'm going to try to point it out from the text. It's very important that you hold on to the argument right now so that you can see how it unfolds, because I'm going to follow this outline for the remainder of our talk time. So if you look at verse 20, you see the word fact, but in fact. So my first point this morning is going to be that we explore the first of a living breed as the facts about Adam. The facts about Adam. Adam's the first man mentioned in the Bible. So the first point is going to be the facts about Adam, verses 20 through 22. Then in verse 23, just six words in, you're going to see the word order. Order. My second point is going to be the first of a living breed based on the order of history. We're going to talk briefly about the order of history. And then finally, we'll see the first of a living breed based on the authority of Christ. And we're going to pick that up in verses 27 and 28, where it says, God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. So the authority of Christ. So if if you want to follow along with this outline, whether you track this in your mind or you make a few notes, we're going to see the fact of Adam, the order of history, and the authority of Christ coming out of this text that we believe God breathed. We believe God gave us this word, and so we want to mine it for gold. We don't want to run past it into our own human philosophies. We believe that God has revealed this word. So we want to see this morning the first of a living breed based on the fact of Adam, the order of history, and the authority of Christ. So first, the fact of Adam. This is verses 21 and 22 primarily. It says, though, in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So he's no longer purporting what would it be like if he didn't get raised. He's actually been raised. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. More on first fruits in a moment. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now you're wondering, well, who is this man that death was brought through? His name is Adam. He was the first parent mentioned in the Bible. You might say the first man. And this is what verse 22 says about Adam. Uh, Literally, the Hebrew word for Adam means man. Adam, it means Adam, it means man. It's synonymous. So Adam is the name for man in Hebrew, the very first couple of books, first couple of chapters in the first book of the Bible where Adam is taught about. It says here, in Adam all die, verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, we have some choices to make here, and I think it's just as good we get this out of the way right away. Are we, what are we talking about here is, are we talking about universalism? Is it that because we're all Adam's offspring, then therefore we're all going to die. I think that's pretty obvious by sight, isn't it? I mean, just by looking at the facts of the way that we're situated in our existence, every single person that's born dies, right? I think it was, I think it was George Bernard Shaw that said, one out of every one people will die. We can all agree on that much, I think. Um, short of some kind of an exception to the order of things, which is our second point, we are all on a trajectory toward passing away. We don't know when, do we? But we're going to die. So our first point is simply that we will die within this pact of, of Adam. Adam. Adam's existence 
and us being from the lineage of our first parents, Adam and Eve, means that we, in fact, will die. This is what the Bible talks so much about, not so much to fear the first death, but to fear the second death. It talks about how we can die spiritually after we've died physically, that physical death is not the most terrible thing, but fear the one that can throw the soul into hell, not just the one that can kill the body, which is clearly a euphemism for a, for a judgment beyond the grave or a life beyond the grave, that we don't just go to sleep as souls when we pass away and we don't just cease to exist, we're not annihilated, there's something else coming. That's the biblical witness is that there's something else coming. And so what we have here from the onset is the fact of Adam. And it says, as in Adam, verse 22, if you're following the argument, all die. So one out of every one people die. The fact of Adam is that we all die. The question is, is there a remedy for this problem? Is there a remedy for the problem of death? And frankly, folks, that is our biggest problem, isn't it? I mean, we worry about death, and I think there's a reason for that. I mean, it's, it is, it's an unavoidable assailant on your otherwise pattern for life. We think about it, and in our more sober moments, things like funerals cause us to reflect on the meaning of life because it seems to physically, at least, end in death. The Bible says that that is because we've been dying ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Ever since they rebelled, we've been dying as mankind or Adam kind. And so there had to be a substantial interjection and interference in that trajectory of death if there was going to be an answer for death. So the, the first of a living breed has to be understood with the fact of Adam. that He's the very first man. And that you and I and all of us are the offspring of Adam and Eve. We read earlier, Eve is the mother of the living. So Adam and Eve had children who had children who had children who had children who had children, and we're here. That is the biblical witness. Now, it says in verse 22, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ, by way of parallel, all shall be made alive. Now, there's a range of meaning here, perhaps. Now, we don't see a range of meaning with all dying. We very clearly, with the eyeball test, see that every single person that's born, eventually, with the natural order of things, they're going to do what? They're going to die. There's going to be a date of birth, and there's going to be a date of death. This is, this is a fact, right? Now, the question is, is there a range of meaning for the all connected with Christ? There are some theologians that would say there is not. This is what's called universalism. It just is just as plainly as it says, so all die, all in, that are born of Adam die, so also all in Christ we may live. So, hey, that's it, right? Case closed. If you are born of Adam because of Jesus, every single person that dies because of Adam's sin will live because of Christ's righteousness. Agree? Oh, there are well-known theologians today that would, would espouse that view, that would teach on that view. Uh, they would see the extent of the uh, atoning work of Christ to extend to every single person in humanity, whether they wanted it or not, frankly. But if you read the Bible on balance, it doesn't seem to intimate that all means all the way you're thinking of it. There are Bible verses that say things uh, like, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, meaning that it's a gift, and verses that are conditional statements, like if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that God raised the Lord from the dead, then you'll be saved, that there's some kind of conditionality of reception of the gospel connected with actual eternal life in Christ. And so we have a fork in the road here. 
is this an all dogs go to heaven kind of reading of the Bible? Or is this a every single person that meets a certain criteria goes to heaven? And we're going to say it's the latter, that there is some criteria that the Bible intimates has to be met in order for a person to be in the all, all of those that are in Christ's body or Christ's people or uh, Christ's church, we might say. So if that's the case, then what is the stipulation? Do we do something to make that happen? If, if all people die in Adam and the remedy is Christ, then how do we get in Christ? What, is it, what does it look like? What is the steps that we have to follow to get into Christ? Well, this is the stuff that Christian religion is made of, right? Uh, some people, you have to do this thing, or you have to do that thing, or you have to make this happen, or you have to make that happen. I believe, based on the authority of Scripture, that salvation is indeed a free gift. Just as I quoted Romans 6.23 just a moment ago, I believe that the offer of salvation is free to you, that you may receive it freely, that you can do nothing to purchase it. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, people get in trouble when they try to monetize salvation. You read it on balance sometime. I mean, they just get themselves in all kinds of trouble. Our first point here is based on the dichotomy between what it looks like to be in the lineage of Adam and what it looks like to be in the lineage of Christ. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 15 will go on to describe Christ as the second Adam or the last Adam. It's a metaphor that was also picked up on in our earlier scriptural reading in the service when Pastor Kurt read Romans 5 that Christ is the better Adam or the second Adam or the last Adam. In fact, the gospel writers understand the totality of the canon of Scripture from Genesis all the way through the prophets and the gospels to Revelation to be seeing Christ as the greater Adam. So as Adam comes into the Garden of Eden and isn't sinful, but then chooses to rebel against God, so usurping free will in a very unlikely way, then we are all infected by his disease of sin. And the main way that we see our infection is one out of every one people will die. The Bible says that the, the result of our sin nature is death. It's not like that sin I did on the 39th year of my life and then the other one I did on the 61st year of my life meant on the blank year of my life I died. No, no, no. It's not like that. It's an infectious disease that in its full-grown maturity, philosophically speaking and spiritually speaking, ends in death. That much we can track from the biblical argument without a doubt. As we track the, the gospel of salvation in Christ, what we can also see relatively clearly, if we're given eyes to see, is that Christ is the better Adam designed to foil the plan of the enemy that we would die because of sin and stay dead. So this first point is critical because you have to understand that in order to grasp being a part of the living breed of which Christ was the first, you must first come to understand the fact that you are a part of a dying breed in Adam and that you need salvation that is a free gift from Jesus Christ. He is the better Adam or the last Adam or the second Adam. And when you read 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5 this way, light bulbs start to come off in your head. You start to, you start to think, wow, he did that for me. Now, before we move on to the second and third points and move rather quickly through them, I think there's something we really need to wrestle with here. Just kind of wrestle with this thing for just a second, as we say. Danny says wrestle. Wrestle. Uh, wrestle, I guess. You know, wrestle, WrestleMania with this thing for just a second. How, how is it that we could affect being in Christ if there was such a plan for Christ's work from the past and into the future? 
And if you start to wrestle with that, you, you see that you really can't do much to affect it at all. In fact, it's a free gift that God from the foundations of the earth intended to offer to you today. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. He intended to offer it to you today. You are not powerful enough to have orchestrated the events that led to this messed up person being made right enough by Christ to stand here on the authority of Scripture, not on my own, and to say to you this gospel of free grace this morning. You couldn't have orchestrated even just me standing here, let alone you being here, drug here or not, let alone this being the day, let alone you finally clicking into gear. Oh my goodness, just as much as I'm going to die, I need to live. How am I going to live? I need to live in Christ. All that stuff. I am a firm believer that God does it if you're saved. It's God's work. It's not mine. And what that leads to when it's God's work and not mine is this overwhelming sense of gratitude that, oh my God plucked me out of that mess. He saw fit to save my soul. He has offered me salvation. It is a free gift. I want it. I want in on that. I want in on the better Adam. I don't just want to be a part of this dying breed. I want to be a part of that living breed that he was the first of. So the first thing you have to get is the fact of Adam in order to to grasp and grapple with your salvation. Second thing is the order of history. Now, I've already given you a little bit of the order of history. Remember, Adam was the first man. God created him, and he set up the first wedding in the garden temple sanctuary that was Eden. Adam married Eve. They were going along just fine, and then they rebelled against God. But they rebelled against God mainly because there was an imposter, a serpent, Satan, that convinced them that they wouldn't die if they rebelled against God. If you read the first two to three three chapters of the Bible, you'll get this whole story. And so Adam is the firstborn among the dead, but Christ is the firstborn among the living. And so this is our second point in the order of operations. We get to that point in the order of history, and then look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, which firstfruits is a crop metaphor. It's like the first of a crop of a lot more of it's to come. So you that are familiar with agricultural farming, firstfruits is an agricultural metaphor. It's certainly written that way. Christ the firstfruits then at his coming... Those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule, authority, and power. So we need to stop right at that moment and take an inventory of what's going on. Here's the order. Christ has already come incarnate way after Adam sinned. He comes as the God-man. He comes to earth. He doesn't sin. And then everything we do is centered on the apex of human history. It happened on one of these things. What do we call it? A cross. And so the cross of Christ is the center of human history. So the order of things is Adam sinned, a whole bunch of stuff happened. In the course of time, Jesus came. He didn't sin. He's different than the first Adam that I look like. And he died really unrightly. He died a death that he didn't have to die so that we might live a life that we don't deserve to live. And he did it on the cross. And so that's the fulcrum of human history. And so they were saved by looking forward to Christ, and we're saved by looking back at Christ's work, but we're also both looking forward in the sense of human history toward the second coming of Christ. And that's exactly what this verse is talking about. It's saying in verse 23 that Christ, the first fruits, or the first of a big crop that's coming of saved people, of people that are regenerate in Christ, at his coming again, we might say, his second coming, those who belong to Christ, they're going to rise. Then comes the end, the end of things as we know it, when Christ delivers the kingdom to the Father 
after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. This is the order of history. Now verse 25, For Christ must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. So he's, uh, imagine that's like a kingly metaphor for putting enemies under your feet. Is a, they're, they're subjected to you, and that's the word that's used a bunch coming forward. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Oh, that's a powerful verse, isn't it? I've got a book here uh, by J.I. Packer and another man. It says, in my place condemned he stood, and inside of it, it has essays about this subject, and one of them is an introduction to an old English Puritan essay written by John Owen. And the title says it all. The Banner of Truth Trust makes this stuff available for free online. But this is a title that's packed with a mouthful of meaning on this verse. It's titled simply, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. If you're really interested in going deeper with this sermon, I would urge you to read it. It's hard to read, but it's worthwhile. John Owen the death of death and the death of Christ. Well, what in the world is he talking about? In a nutshell, he's saying that death died when Christ died. The death of death and the death of Christ. When did death die? When Christ died. Because just as sure as Christ died wrongly, he rose again rightly. And in his resurrection from the dead, we witness the death of death and the death of Christ. A facet, if you want to know that Christianity has some muscle to it, go back and read that because it's been around a long time, and that's an, an amazing essay. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, verse 26. Now, concluding the second point, before we go to our third one and conclude the sermon, this second point, the first one was the fact of Adam. The second one is the order of history. Adam sinned, Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, the death of death and the death of Christ. He rises again. He's the first of the crop, the first fruits of all of those that will rise again. So a lot of people are going to rise again. And then there's a batch of time here as we're living as our lives together as believers, as the church. And then Christ is coming again. And when he comes again, the dead in Christ will rise first. And they will get imperishable bodies this is after all has been put under Christ's feet will everything be done and there will be no more death. Now the exact exact amount of time and affairs in there is a little fuzzy. We don't know exactly. But God gives us enough biblical information, enough biblical data to know that Christ has delivered the death knell in death and the last enemy death will be conquered upon the return of Christ. And those that have gone before us, the dead in Christ shall rise, is what the Bible says in Thessalonians. And we will have imperishable bodies, eternal bodies, is, is what it says here in, Thessalonians, in, in Corinthians 15, if you read further in the chapter. And so he kills death. So the order of operations, getting to our third point, the subjection of everything under Christ's feet in the final analysis of things, as we get there, understand this order. Christ is the crop. Christ will return. And Christ will kill death. And then our third point. His authority will be unrivaled. It'll be the new Eden. We won't be east of Eden anymore. In terms of understanding the whole Bible. His authority will be unrivaled. All of his rivals, they'll be thwarted. It'll be the end of... And, and this is where we really walk by faith and not by sight. I mean, it's easy to see that one out of every one people are going to die, but it takes eyes of faith to look forward and say, Christ is going to conquer everything, and I want to be with him. That's my guy. That's the ultimate man right there. That's the ultimate Adam is Jesus. So this is what verses 27 and 28 give us. And so try to hang with this as the text comes together in conclusion this morning. This is our third point, that the first of the living breed is to be understood, not just with the facts of Adam and the order of history, but the authority of of Christ, the authority of Christ. Listen to verses 27 and 28 afresh. 
God has put, for God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son himself will also, hang with this, will also be, this is, this is really something, when, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. And what's the purpose of that? The purpose clause is that God may be all in all. So what is this about? Christ getting authority to yield authority. There's all kinds of places we can go really wrong here. Like we can form the early church heresy of thinking Jesus is a created being instead of an eternal being. And in fact, God the Son is eternal. He was there in eternity past. He's there in eternity future. There's a there's a, punk, a, a point in time when Christ was born a man, but Christ himself as God the Son existed in eternity past, existed in eternity future. So good biblical theology helps us to see there's no way that we need to think of Jesus as being subjected in terms of essentially. He's not subjected to the Father in terms of like a lower rung of being. No, 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 no. But functionally, Christ chooses the path of subjection to the Father. We see this in Philippians 2 and and other places like it. Listen to what Craig Blomberg wrote about uh, this passage. I think you'll find it helpful. He says, the he in verse 27 refers to God. The his to Christ in verse 27b clarifies, as a representative of humanity, of all Adam's children, and doing what humans were supposed to have done but failed to do, that's exercise dominion over the world, Jesus remains ultimately subordinate yet to God the Father. If you read like Psalm 8 or Hebrews 2, you find that Jesus in his incarnation was made a little lower than the angels. Quoting Psalm from the Old Testament here is intended to stress Christ's conquests as well. The result is that God is all in all. He is sovereign. Though God the Son is essentially equal to the Father, He remains functionally subordinate to the Father, just as His glorified humanity keeps Him distinct from what He was prior to His being incarnated. The long and the short of it is, God is such a huge deal that He has set up relationship within Himself that if you would mine the riches of Scripture, you would come to see that God wasn't relationally boring in eternity past, and we're not going to be relationally bored in eternity, in eternity future. The fact of the matter is, is that the Spirit is subjected to the Son, and He doesn't seem to have any problem with it. And the fact of the matter is, the Son is subjected to the Father in the final analysis of things, and He doesn't seem to have any problem with it. And the question remains... If we, in fact, are being subjected to Christ, which we should gladly want to be as His church, as His bride, since He's our groom, why do we have a problem with it? It is the hanging on of sin like a yapping dog on your pant legs or your jeans that causes us to not want to surrender and subject ourselves to the authority of the risen Christ. Don't you know that every single knee will bow and every time will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord at the end? They won't have control over it. Every king will be toppled. Every nation will be brought under the domain of Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, here, Father, I finished my work. And in, in, in all of eternity future, we as his people are going to be in glad subjection to Jesus Christ. The only difference between us and them that won't be 
is that we decide now by faith and not simply by sight, I, I, I see Jesus and I want to be in subjection to him. I want in on that free gift of eternal life. That's how we get in Christ. As I asked this morning, is that what you want? I don't ask you this morning in, in some kind of an assurance that if you get in subjection to Christ, everything's going to be wonderful because it's not. Following Christ is rough at times. It's also glorious. You, you bring yourself adopted into a family, and you get, start getting involved with God's people, and it's messy, but it's good, and it's, it's promising and assuring, but yet it's hard and it's troubling, and it can be very difficult, but it's, but it's worth it. I want to ask you this morning, this Mother's Day 2019, would you like to know that you are in Christ the same way that you're definitely assured you're in Adam? Would you like to know that you have life eternal under the subjection to Christ, to God, the same as you know that you have death assured under subjection to the curse of Adam? Would you like to have that? The Bible says very simply it's offered as a free gift to you. You don't need a theological degree. You don't need to know a whole lot about the Bible yet. You don't need to have been at this church a long time. As a matter of fact, all that is needed is your soft heart praying and calling to God and saying, I want you in me. Would you make me right in Christ? If you want that this morning, it's yours for the taking. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, help each of us this morning. Help that one that has figured out the historical order of things, that has figured out the death in Adam to realize their subjection to Christ. Help them to see by your word preached through your spirit this morning that has gone before us, help them to see their salvation and to gladly receive it. I hope that today, I hope that today is a wonderful start of spiritual things for folks that never expected to receive it this morning when they got up and got dressed for church on Mother's Day. I ask your good work to be done in them and that we would have the, the joy of celebrating with your angels in heaven over someone that comes into you and becomes the all of you that will be resurrected and made imperishable on the day of you. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I'm going to ask that you would meditate on these words this morning as our ushers come to receive our offerings and our tear-offs.